Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. It's February 8th, 1912. Robert Falcon Scott and his four companions are returning from the South Pole. Beaten, dejected. At 90 degrees south, they had found Amundsen's tent with the Norwegian flag flying. It's been three weeks since they left the pole. They have begun thankfully to descend from the high altitude and incessant wind of the polar plateau. Starting down the Beardmore Glacier, they are retracing their route back to the barrier, as they call it, or what today we know as the Ross Ice Shelf. On that day, Scott directed his party towards the moraine below Mount Buckley to get out of the wind. He noted in his diary, the delight of setting foot on rock after 14 weeks of snow and ice. It was like going ashore after a sea voyage. While resting on the sheltered moraine that afternoon, members of his party carried out geologizing, collecting in the process 16 kilograms of rock samples, which included plant fossils. Scott wrote that among the specimens was a piece of coal with beautifully traced leaves and layers and some excellently preserved impressions of thick stems showing cellular structure. Nine months later, these very rock samples were found with the bodies of Scott, Wilson and Bowers when the rescue party discovered their tent on the barrier. In the many books written about that ill-fated expedition, there has been much commentary on Scott's so-called folly of adding that additional 16 kilograms of rock to their burden in such dire circumstances. What is undeniable, however, is their significance. Plant fossils in Antarctica weren't new. It was Norwegian Carl Anton Larsen, the pioneer of Antarctic whaling, who was the first to find fossils of petrified wood in Antarctica. He found them on Seymour Island off the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula in 1892. Larsen went on to become the first person to ski in Antarctica on the ice shelf that would later bear his name. A decade later, in 1902, Swedish geologist Otto Nordenskold discovered Jurassic plant fossils also on Seymour Island. He became one of the first to suggest that Antarctica must have experienced a much warmer climate in the past, covered by forests of ferns and tropical plants. A year later, in 1903, there was another find of plant fossils, this time on the other side of the continent, during Scott's first visit to Antarctica, the Discovery Expedition. It was the geologist, Hartley Ferrer who discovered fossilised plant remains in the Upper Taylor Valley, one of the famous dry valleys west of McMurdo Sound. Shackleton too got in on the act. During the Nimrod expedition in 1908, he discovered impressions of leaves and sandstone boulders while making the first ascent of the Beardmore Glacier. However, the plant fossils Scott's party found on that day in 1912 led to a breakthrough in the geological understanding of Antarctica. It would feed into the burgeoning debate at that time on Gondwanaland, continental drift, and Antarctica's role in the formation of the continents. The samples were taken back to Britain, and in 1914 at Cambridge University, botanist Albert Seward identified among them the ancient Glossopteris flora, 
it was the first time evidence of this extinct plant species had been found in Antarctica. Glossopterus was the name first used by French botanist Adolphe Broniart in 1828 to describe the tongue-shaped fossilised leaves that had been discovered in India and Australia up to that time. Through the 19th century, more and more of these Glossopterus fossils were discovered in other locations in southern Africa and South America. Finally, in 1885, the Austrian geologist Edward Zeus proposed that all these lands where the Glossopterus fossils were being found must have once been connected as part of a supercontinent which he named Gondwana Land. Almost three decades later, in fact at the very same time that Scott was making his attempt on the South Pole in January 1912, German scientist Alfred Wegener was publishing his first thoughts on what he termed continental drift. It became the basis for what today we know as plate tectonics. Seward's identification of the Glossopterus flora among Scott's rock samples not only confirmed that Antarctica had been part of Gondwana land, it would be subsequently used by Wegener as further proof of his theory of continental drift. Today we know that the Glossopterus plant group succumbed in the largest mass extinction the Earth has ever known, 251 million years ago. It's called the Permian Mass Extinction Event. Up until 2016, the oldest plant fossils found in Antarctica were dated to just before that extinction event, some as old as 260 million years. By way of comparison, the oldest plant fossils found anywhere on Earth date back to the original greening of the planet approximately 380 million years ago when forests were first appearing. In December 2016, a group of American geologists were conducting fieldwork in a remote location near the Shackleton Glacier in the Transantarctic Mountains. They unexpectedly discovered the fossilised remains of an ancient forest. Tests showed the trees were 280 million years old. They are the oldest plant remains anyone has ever found in Antarctica to date. Today on the Antarctic Report podcast, we talked to one of the lead scientists who made that exciting discovery, Assistant Professor Eric Gilbranson of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Eric Gilbranson, welcome to the Antarctic Report. Great, thank you for having me. Eric, uh, first of all, can you tell us what it is that you do? I will. I am an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the Department of Geosciences, and I am a geologist, and um, my specialty in geology is a study of plant fossils, fossil ecosystems, and I also study the chemistry of those fossil organisms. So first and foremost, you're a geologist, yeah? Yes. So, Eric, why do you go to Antarctica? You've clearly been there more than once. How many times, in fact, have you been to Antarctica? I've been there five times so far. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, when was your first time? Let's see. It was in uh, 2010, 2011. Okay, great. Okay. So you've almost been there every summer season since, yeah? Yeah. Interestingly, it's been about every other year I traveled down there. Why do you go to Antarctica? Well, it's an unexpected answer, I think, to anybody who's listening, but I don't go there to study the glaciers or penguins or seals or anything like that. Um, Antarctica, for a geologist, has a lot of appeal. Um, And for me, Antarctica has the best preserved plant fossils on on the planet Earth. Um, So I go there to study the exquisite 
fossil remains of trees and ferns and things like that that are exposed as fossilized forested ecosystems. So you've been there five times. You've always presumably gone through McMurdo Station? That's correct, yep. Um, each time we transit through Christchurch, New Zealand, and um, down to McMurdo, and from there we will usually make a remote tent camp somewhere in the Transantarctic Mountains. Okay, and for the, the five different summers you've been there, has it each summer have you gone to a different location or have you ended up revisiting certain locations? Yeah, um, for two consecutive seasons, we um, revisited a very similar similar location because we were trying to access um, a mountain called Carapace Nunatak, and it was logistically challenging to visit because of the extreme wind and cold conditions that were there. And so it took us uh, the better part of two summer seasons to finally um, access that site. And so that was one of the um, rarities in which we kind of visited the same site. Um, more than once. But other the other seasons I've been down there, we visited uh, different areas each time. Okay. And just to help people out with a little bit of the, the basic geography of Antarctica, the, tra- the Transantarctic Mountains, of course, go down the spine of the continent from, from coast to coast. But in uh, each time that you've gone to Antarctica, how far have you gone from McMurdo? We're talking a distance of how many kilometers do you think from McMurdo to these different locations? Oh, I'd say um, around say maximum 400 kilometers away from McMurdo Station. Okay. And, and when you go there, so these are remote locations from a, an Antarctic point of view. Um, yes. how, how long do you stay at each location? Ideally, we like to stay there at least 20 days. Um, okay. Or, or about a month. Um, that's, that's about um, a good time frame for us to achieve uh, the particular goals of our, of our field work. Okay, cool. And um, it's, since we're talking about the, the nitty gritty of the operations, Eric, can you just describe each time? So, so what we're talking about, uh, how many in each party? It's, we're talking about twin otters or Basler aircraft, yeah? And, and presumably you're also taking some specialist field personnel to help you with the safety, et cetera. Can, can you describe a little bit about what each of those expeditions is like? Oh, I'd be glad to. Yeah. Um, we run with a field party that has ranged between 10 people and down to five people, um, which we had this past season, we had five people. In our group, we have you know roughly nine to four uh, scientists, uh, myself included, and we always have one professionally trained mountaineer, IFGMA certified, um, or some of the classic, uh, we have some old school mountaineers from New Zealand that just kind of, with their immense experience working either in Antarctica or just in the mountains, um, we value their insight too for uh, field safety. And so. We usually have scientists and one mountaineer. And then what we've done recently, we've kind of pioneered this a little bit. We've brought in some other um, mountain specialists, too, to help us with uh, all of our, our logistics for extracting fossils out of our campsite and back to McMurdo. So they deal with a lot of the, uh, the loads and the cargo that we have to move around because we generate anywhere between five to 10,000 pounds of fossil samples each season. So we have an immense amount of fossiliferous cargo to move between our deep field campsites and McMurdo Station. So if we're talking about twin otters and basilers, that's, well, especially for a twin otter aircraft, that's, uh, that's quite a weight to put back on a plane, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's multiple uh, shipments. You can't do it all at once. And so it involves staging gear, uh, caching gear for some period of time, and having it kind of extricated out iteratively, um, either with a basler or with an, a, a twin otter, 
uh, we work mostly when we're working uh, on a day-to-day basis. What we try to do is we try to make a campsite that's basically in a mountainous area that has fossil locations nearby so we can work on land. But usually we have some really interesting or exciting field prospects nearby. And so we try to get helicopter support using Bell 212s to um, ferry us around on these day trips where we'll land on more remote locations, a more technical terrain, and um, access fossil resources that way. Incidentally, Eric, have you ever taken a fossil out to back to the, the remote camp location? And have you ever left it there for the winter and gone back and retrieved it? Or have you generally tried to take each uh, fossil out each summer? We generally try to take them out each summer, although it's, it's feasible in some seasons where we have, uh, say, on a given grant proposal, we might have two seasons. It would be feasible for us to cache and overwinter the fossils. But for what we've done, we've always been able to extricate the fossils um, in total each season. Okay. And when, when they're back at McMurdo, incidentally, are they flown out or are they put on a ship or a bit of both? Oh, yeah. They, they take a slow boat back to California. So, yeah, they, they um, eventually get put on a container ship and they are um, sailed across the Pacific uh, back to California. And when they're back in, the, back in California... Do they all go back to your university in Milwaukee or are they, do, you, do you spread them out and are they tested, et cetera, in different locations? Yeah, um, they become part, well, when we collect them, because we're part of the, the U.S. Antarctic program um, and it's a, it's a federally funded program, they become in the public domain of the U.S. And so what we try to do is we're generally split between two institutions, uh, this institution at, at, um, in Wisconsin. And then um, we have colleagues at the University of Kansas, and Kansas has a Natural History Museum, which is the official repository for plant fossils collected in the U.S. program. And so eventually these fossils all make their way back to Kansas, either directly from Antarctica or once I'm done working on them here, they'll go back to Kansas where they're officially curated and maintained in perpetuity. So people can go to Kansas and there's a museum that will display these fossils? Yeah, they'll, they'll put them on display, and they're also available for, for analyses, for work, um, to view them. Um, but yeah, because they are in the public ownership. And so, yeah, they're, 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 we try to disseminate those fossils as, as widely and easily as we can to the public at large. And that includes international colleagues, too. Our, our field teams have tended to be international in scope, involving collaborators from, say, France, Germany, Argentina. And so we, we have a history of working with international uh, colleagues. Are you a mountaineer at all yourself? I mean, do, do, do the scientists, so you, you have these field specialists who are helping you out. Um, presumably yeah. you have to put on ropes and crampons at, time, yeah. at times. Yeah. Are, are, you, are you a bit of a mountaineer yourself, Eric? I am, actually. Um, I view it as yeah, definitely an important training for working in Antarctica because you constantly have to negotiate um, not only mountainous terrain but glaciated terrain and as in addition to the extreme cold and wind conditions. And so it's not required of us, but I tend to train for those conditions um, in the off season, if you will. And it's part of my, just part of my recreational habit. I do a lot of recreational um, alpine climbing and just rock climbing to keep um, those skills honed and just for good physical fitness and just because it's, it's pure fun. Great. Let's get on to the fossils. So can, can I ask you, uh, first of all, Eric, prior to, say, the last five or six years or so, the oldest fossils that had been found in Antarctica of trees, uh, how far back did they go? They were, in terms of like a numeric age, 
the oldest forest that we had found, and, and by we, I mean like the royal we, just in the, the community that's worked there, were about, say, 260 million years old. Okay, 260. And, and whereabouts? That was uh, different, different parts of the continent? Uh, yeah, um, those forests, they, they actually span um, uh, an immense part of the Transantarctic Mountains. You can find them in northern Victoria land and uh, as far south as, say, the Ohio Range and elsewhere. So, like, you know, getting far south is like 86 degrees south latitude. So an immense latitudinal range. And uh, we kept finding these fossils at a very specific uh, location in the stratigraphic layering. And that layering corresponds to an age that's approximately 260 million years old. And so our knowledge of, of fossil forests on Antarctica, in terms of the oldest ones, we, tend to, we, we were pretty confident that we had a good bearing that most of the forests that we found were in that one layer. Can we just cl- clear up for, for the ignoramuses among us, myself included, Eric, can you help us out here with plate tectonics, continental drift, right? So we were taught in school that the plates moved around over, you know, long geological periods, right? So the, the continent of Antarctica today, presumably in, at, at different times, it was in different latitudes. Can you, can you clarify that? And can you also tell us at what point did the, the continent that we know today of, uh, of Antarctica, at what, at what point did it reach, if you like, or stay at the polar latitudes that, that it is today? Sure, yeah. Um, the plate tectonic reconstructions, not only for Antarctica, but every other continent on Earth, is a subject of continuing and intense study. It's a really challenging area of study because you have to figure out kind of where these continents lived uh, in, at relative latitudes. And we use <clears throat> magnetic minerals to help define that because magnetic minerals record some effect of Earth's magnetic field, which, is, uh, which varies by latitude. So the magnetic minerals kind of gives a rough idea of the latitude of a certain area. And then we use like different kinds of fossil remains at times. We use different kinds of sedimentary deposits. And features of, like, say, ancient or very long-lived mountain ranges help us to kind of understand the configuration, movement, and position of these different tectonic plates over time. And when we look at that, just focusing on the continent of Antarctica over the last half billion years, um, the most up-to-date information we have is about now um, approximately eight years old. So it was published in 2010. And they give us a sense for the migration of the continent with latitude over half billion years. Mm-hmm. And Antarctica has roughly remained near the southern pole, not always at the pole, over half a billion years, making a really brief departure in the Jurassic about 180 million years ago, mm-hmm. up to 60 degrees south latitude, maybe in between 50 and 60 degrees south latitude, and then promptly reversing its course and then shifting back south again. Okay. Towards its present day position near the South Pole. And at the, at the time of these fossil forests I mentioned, 260 million years ago, um, the continent was rotated roughly 90 degrees from where it currently sits and was shifted just slightly south of the, of the South Magnetic Pole. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, a very similar um, geographic location on our planet 260 million years ago. Okay. So in other words... Any, any plant fossils that you find in Antarctica are going to be of a, of a polar, from a polar forest, yeah? Yeah, that's one of the unique things too. So not only are they well-preserved, but they also record this really unique ecosystem, which we don't really have today, a good analog, an ecosystem that basically existed around 80 degrees 
south latitude. So a true polar ecosystem with the true uh, polar complete darkness conditions during the polar winter and complete 24 hours of light during the polar summer. Just to help me with your chronological sequence of your own personal time down there, Eric, so you've been down, down there five times, right? Yeah. Certainly, I've been reading that that was not the summer that you've just returned from, but last year you made some pretty important discoveries. Do you want to take us through the sequential seasons you had? And in terms of, you know, it's clearly got a very exciting one about a year ago. Yeah, do, you, do you want to describe that to us? Yeah, of course. Um, so my first season down there was in 2010. And um, I was fresh out of graduate school, so a kind of freshly minted uh, scientist. It was my first foray into studying uh, fossil plants. My initial expertise was in studying volcanic ashes and fossilized soils and things like that. And so I was very excited to work, uh, work in this area, and we surveyed an area near the Beardmore Glacier, which is the largest valley glacier in the world. And we worked there for about a month and a half, and we found one new fossil forest uh, that season. Uh, it was the same age as those other ones I mentioned, roughly, say, 260 million years old. Mm-hmm. It's in that same a stratigraphic layering. Mm-hmm. Um, we found a bunch of uh, plant leaf fossil localities, I mean, increased the diversity of, of plant fossils that lived at that time, 260 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, roll the clock forward to 2012, and I'll lump in 2014 as well, because we worked in the same area in southern Victoria land, mm-hmm. in a place called the Allen Hills, which is uh, famous for having one of the first meteorites discovered uh, nearby. Mm-hmm. And we made a remote camp in the Allen Hills, and there we discovered um, a Triassic fossil ecosystem. So this is roughly 240 million years old, so much younger. Mm-hmm. And we found one of the most diverse assemblages of leaf fossils we've ever found on the whole continent um, in the Allen Hills. So it was an incredibly exciting find for us mm-hmm. that year. And we also found a new fossil forest as well, but this is, again, in the Triassic, so much younger. Uh, it, that one contained 37 trees in it, so it was a really exciting find as well on top of all these really diverse uh, leaf fossils. And then we jumped forward to last year, uh, 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. And we worked in an area nearby the Beardmore, uh, where, where, I first, where I first worked. And we were based out of the Shackleton Glacier. Mm-hmm. And last year is funny because we could only work with the Twin Otter. So we had limited landing capability, um, landing only where you could access a good, run, a good skiway for the Otter. And we had just horrible weather conditions in a lot of the areas that we wanted to work. And so by weather and landing, we were actually forced to work at a nearby location, which is low on our list of things to look at. And it was low on our list of things to look at because it had a stratigraphic layering that was much, much older than all these fossil forests that we found before. Okay. So we didn't expect to find anything here. We just went there because it's the could go to access rock, really. Uh, otherwise, we'd be stuck on a neve, just in the balmy, snowy conditions of a, of a neve in between um, the McGregor and Shackleton Glacier area. Yep. So accessing this new mountain range, I started surveying and walking around the landscape on these very steep slopes. They're very similar to the Eiger Mountain in the Alps. Really, really crumbly rock, super steep, hard to, hard to negotiate and walk around. And our mountaineer, Peter Braddock, actually discovered one um, upright tree fossil. And he pointed that out to me, and then I kept working around that layer. And lo and behold, we discovered 13 more uh, fossilized trees in that same layer. And so that became a brand new fossil forest. And the 
the age of that forest, because of the, the position it was in, or that it is, it is in, in the stratigraphy, we estimate to be roughly, say, 270, 280 million years old. At the moment that, that you and your colleagues saw these fossils, did you guess that they must have been older than previous fossils, or did you have to wait till they got back to the States and you did some proper testing? No, we could actually determine that in the field with two um, two different field techniques that we can use. Like mm-hmm. one really basic field technique, and it's basically using the the stratigraphy of the of the fossil organs themselves to determine the age. Because we know the ages of certain leaf fossils is it, not super precise, but we can get maybe plus or minus ten million years on certain leaf fossil associations. So we found associations of glossopterous leaves and gangamopterous leaves, which tell us we're in an earlier part of this period called Permian period. Mm-hmm. And the second technique we use is called what we call lithostratigraphy. It uses the, the rock, the nature of the rock itself, the alterations of, say, finer grained siltstones, sandstones, and the expression of those rocks to define kind of a, a generalized age pattern. These techniques in combination help us to narrow down the plausible age of the organism, and it tells us that it's older than the earlier forest that we, or the forest we found much earlier in our history of working down there. But what, it, what it doesn't do, it doesn't give us a highly precise method of getting the age of the forest, but it does tell us with some certainty that we are much older in the rock layering uh, than the other forests that we found before. So on those bases in the field, like that year, uh, we were able to say with confidence that this was the oldest forest that we have found on the continent and that we know of from the literature from other people working elsewhere um, in Antarctica. Just to be clear about this, Eric, these are the oldest forest fossils anybody has ever discovered in, in Antarctica, yeah? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and there's always a chance that, you know, in a subsequent season working in another area, we might find an even older one. But at the, at, the, at the moment, at the time, this right now is the oldest forested ecosystem that we've found um, on the continent. So wow. East Antarctica, West Antarctica, and along the central Transantarctic mountains. Okay. Um, definitely the oldest one. Yeah, so there must have been quite a bit of high-fiving uh, in the field. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you were aware then and there that these were very old fossils, yeah? Yeah, I mean, morale was actually very low uh, prior to that because we just couldn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. We'd all these other sites we wanted to visit, and we were excited for various reasons to go to these other sites, and we just could not access them. Okay. And, uh, and so finally, in finding these fossils and finding this forest and realizing how old this forest probably was, was incredibly exciting for us. Um, it, it, made that season, it made that season great for us, for sure. What was the location, the name of the location that you discovered these fossils last year? Yeah, the name of the location is called McIntyre Promontory. You went back again just recently in uh, December, January, right, of, the, of the, the current season. Did you find anything? Did you go back to the same location, incidentally? Um, we did. So McIntyre Promontory has, it's, it's a large, um, has large relief on the mountain, and it's about two miles long and probably like a thousand feet of relief mm-hmm. of that mountain range with these immense sills of uh, this intrusive igneous rock called dolerite. Mm-hmm. And it makes it difficult. You can't really walk up the entire face of McIntyre Promontory because of these steep uh, dolerite cliffs. It would actually force you to do technical rock climbing. And the rock isn't that great either. So it'd be really dangerous uh, rock climbing to do. So what we did this year 
Um, the fossil forest we found last year was at the base of McIntyre Promontory. So we actually landed in the snow field right at the very base of the mountain itself and then walked up as far as we could. Mm-hmm. And this what we did was we studied a much younger set of rocks in the Permian period at roughly 250 million years old. And we landed on the top of McIntyre Promontory with a helicopter and then descended down. And we rigged up for uh, technical rock climbing, too, because the top of that mountain is very steep. And so we had ropes and harnesses. And it was actually just my mountaineer, Danny Allman, and I that attempted that because it's we viewed it as being a very kind of high-risk area to work. And mm-hmm. so we didn't want to have people um, walking around that area. So he and I descended down to find much younger <laughs> ecosystems. Because what we're trying to do in this whole project is really to study how this unique polar ecosystem how it went through this major mass extinction that occurred 251 million years ago. It's called the end Permian biotic crisis or the Permian-Triassic boundary. And it's an extinction interval in which 95% or more of all species on Earth went extinct. Mm-hmm. The, ma- the most severe mass extinction in the history of life. Do we and know, do we know, sorry to interrupt, Derek, do we know, I've got to ask this question, do we know what caused that? It's, um, it's a subject of, with most mass extinctions, it's a subject of debate. Uh, and there's been many different hypotheses that's been, that have been floated around in the history uh, of the study of this interval. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we seem to be resting on as a community of scientists is that rapid and immense volcanism in what is now present-day Siberia released uh, an enormous amount of greenhouse gases like CO2 and methane mm-hmm. into the atmosphere. And the com- uh, the uh, rapidity of the injection of those gases into our atmosphere caused different kinds of changes for marine ecosystems and, and terrestrial ecosystems because we see in the fossil record that both types of ecosystems underwent these um, extinction intervals to varying degrees. And so this massive volcanism and injection of greenhouse gases is our best guess right now as to the, as the driver of the end Permian mass extinction. Okay, right. So back to the season, did you did you find any fossils of a similar age to the previous year? We did not, and we um, opted to not look at the older stratigraphy because um, a the the stuff we found last year was so exciting that it gave us kind of a baseline, if you will, for what this pre-extinction ecosystem may have been. Mm-hmm. It's much older than the extinction interval, and it's not in any kind of rapid climate change scenario that we know of from that time period. So we kind of view it maybe as our kind of background or baseline polar environment prior to the extinction. So we, were, we felt very happy to have that for that, that purpose, because our study is trying to figure out how these organisms went through this extinction interval. So our goal this year was to try to find fossil ecosystems in the extinction interval. And this is what we were most excited about. You know, we just got back from Antarctica like uh, a month ago. What we found this past year, we found five new fossil forests. Mm-hmm. And we found these fossil forests uh, extending into what we think is these, I think we've actually captured these polar ecosystems during the extinction interval itself. And that we are incredibly excited about those discoveries because they might give us our first glimpse into how life on land and especially life on land at the pole may have adapted to or been otherwise hampered by this extinction crisis that happened. What did these plants look like? I mean, if, if, you know, if we were down there 250 million years ago or whatever, what would, would, would we be walking through a forest? How high would the canopy be? What, what would it look like? Any idea? Yeah, yeah, and we can see that right from the field. Um, the uh, fossils themselves are incredibly well preserved. So often, what you'll get 
are entire trunks of trees that are laid down in what was a river at one time. Mm-hmm. Or you'll get cross-sections of the trunks in, the, in a forest as they grew so many millions of years ago. Mm-hmm. And we can tell a lot of things about these fossils. We can tell how tall the trees were, because sometimes we have the full tree um, exposed in a sedimentary rock, like a sandstone. Mm-hmm. Or we can use these things called allometric relationships to basically scale the whole tree up based on the diameter of the tree itself. And that's based upon many modern observations for how plants grow and just the basic physics of how a plant would grow into a tree. So that tells us that these trees, as you're walking through these forests millions of years ago, would have ranged in height between, say, 20 feet tall to 100 feet tall. Okay. Um, a drastic range in, in height. And the leaves were really interesting. Uh, they're actually broadleaf trees. So more similar to, say, lower latitude uh, forests today on Earth. Very dissimilar from what we see at present day high latitude forests, say, in the boreal forests, which are dominated mostly by needle-leaved conifers. Mm-hmm. What we see in the Permian are these broad leaves, these kind of spatula-shaped leaves that grew out of these branches on trees that were probably 100 feet tall. Okay. The canopy was probably similar to a conifer forest because we think that the structure of these trees were kind of, they're kind of conical in nature. So more cone-like shaped trees as opposed to like a large kind of blooming tropical tree you might find in the African savanna. Sure. Like that. Can you point to any plants on earth today, Eric, that come anywhere near resembling what these forests look like? Yeah, um, and I, I, I have to be careful with, in how I can make this comparison because there's lots of differences too. Sure. Uh, because plants we're looking at are extinct. Sure. But in terms of the shape of the leaf and how it was arranged on the plant, something like a rhododendron today okay. might be a similar analog to the general idea for what the leaves looked like and the size of those leaves. Yep. And it's true too that these not all these plants that have these leaf shapes were true trees that grew 100 feet tall. What we're finding, especially this season too, is that some of them were shrub-like. Some of them had multiple stems that uh, radiated out from the land surface. Mm-hmm. And that's an, even though it may seem like a small detail, it's exciting for us because it tells us something about the structure and complexity of the ecosystem that we didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Um, before we started this research, like eight years ago, the idea for how these forests look on Antarctica was that they were kind of monospecific, the same type of plant, the same kind of tree, radiating out, you know, as far as the eye could see. Mm-hmm. But what we're developing now from discovering all these new forests is that they were dramatically different in the composition, structure, the height, different species involved in these ecosystems. And what the interplay was, say, the environment they formed in, what the interplay was between the plants themselves and microorganisms in the soil. We're actually finding this out, too, because we have a fossil record of the um, microorganisms that inhabited and developed symbioses with these plants. This is a botanical question, I guess, Eric, but I'm sure you can help us out. Let's think of the northern hemisphere, right? We have forests, we have trees today that are surviving in fairly high latitudes. Even what, you know, north of the Arctic Circle, uh, you can still find some trees right in Siberia or or, um, Alaska. How does vegetation survive in that very high latitude where, you know, um, obviously north of the Arctic Circle, there's going to be some periods where the sun disappears entirely, right? So, yeah, how how does that work with the um, vegetation that we know today? Um, Yeah, so, um, yeah, lots of really 
good questions there. So, yeah, what we see today in, in vegetation that extends towards the very northern reaches of the boreal forest is that um, the size of those plants tend to diminish as we go towards more northerly latitudes. So, in the boreal forest, where we have, say, a trade off between broadleaf deciduous trees mm-hmm. to more needle leaf conifers, those heights of those plants tend to decrease as we go towards the pole mm-hmm. and become more shrub like, too, when we're in the tundra or taiga. So, that's one contrast with what we see for the ecosystems in the past that actually inhabited the polar reaches. We don't see the same diminishing trend in size. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true for the Antarctic, um, both in the Permian, the 260 million years ago, the Triassic, 240 million years ago, the Cretaceous from the Antarctic Peninsula, roughly 100 million years ago. And we see similar trends like that um, in the Eocene, uh, roughly 55 million years ago, um, in the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. Mm-hmm. So the polar ecosystems, when they fully established near the North or South Pole, have a very different style of growth of the forest compared to the modern boreal forest. So today we see kind of a diminishing size of plants and, and more sparsely spread out plants as you go towards the tree line. Um, and in the past, we see completely different trends where we have very tall trees, mixed species, dense canopy cover. So it's very interesting for us to understand how Earth's um, eco- ecosystems uh, were structured in the deep past. The second thing about polar, the polar night and polar summer, that's an interesting question that we don't have a great answer for because uh, we need to either do, say, empirical studies of plants and growth chambers where we simulate those light conditions, or what we try to do with the fossils is use the chemistry of the fossils to understand their biology. And what we're gleaning, we don't have a great answer for how these plants survived and how they thrived in such extreme light conditions. But what we're getting a sense for is that they had a very rapid way of shutting themselves off and going into dormancy okay. and then turning themselves back on and getting growing. In, in temperate latitudes, New Zealand or here in Wisconsin, our plants transition to dormancy over a period of many months. But these plants in, in, the, in the fossil record have anatomical evidence that su- suggests that they basically stopped and started in maybe a matter of weeks. All right. Another random question here, Eric. The uh, the tilt of the Earth, what which gives us the seasons, that 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 obviously ch- has changed and, and does change. And and we know that the you know the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic Circle that's moving very very slightly all the time. At the time of the 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 forest fossils that you've discovered, right, about 260, 280 million years ago, do we have any sense of what the tilt of the Earth was and and how far that latitude of polar night extended from the pole? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, we don't. I can't say for for certain what the degree of tilt would have been, but we know that the Earth's tilt of, of its axis changes between about twenty three point five degrees and twenty four point five degrees about every forty thousand years. So we mm-hmm. call that it's a it's a it's an orbital parameter we call obliquity. So it has mm-hmm. a fine period um, developed by a mathematician, um, and we call it as part of the Milankovitch cycles, and that's yeah. Like you said, it determines, um, it helps determine the seasons. And it's more, the polar regions are more sensitive to changes in Earth's tilt of its axis because it definitely changes that incident angle of sunlight, which controls temperature, moisture patterns, things like that at the high mm-hmm. 
So what we, while we can't say for certain like what the tilt would have been, we know that it varied most likely over 40, uh, on 40,000 year periods, even as okay. far back as 260 million years ago. Okay. So right. in the record of the fossils um, that spans, say, tens of millions of years in Antarctica, you definitely have like N number of those obliquity cycles recorded in there. But what's interesting about that is that the further back you go in time, say hundreds of millions of years, the sun's luminosity, we know, actually changes appreciably on those 100 million year time scales. So even though mm-hmm. obliquity might have been, say, changing at the same period, we know that there's a faint, a faintness to the solar luminosity that would have been more manifest at that time. And to okay. us, that's really intriguing because now you have less solar radiation coming in, perhaps in general, maybe a colder Earth climate. So we, then that forces us to find other factors or study other factors of the Earth system, like Earth's climate or oceans, to help explain how we can have warm enough conditions at the pole to support these forested ecosystems at a time when you had simply less intense sunlight coming in. It it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it, what you're describing, that there's less sun luminosity, yet we have forests growing in polar regions where you can't find trees today, right? Sounds counterintuitive. One possible, just top of my head, like thing to look for would be maybe changes in the atmosphere composition to have more greenhouse gases and that could increase warming. But, you know, that's not a thing that we know for for certain. It's just a hypothesis that one could use to, to test such an idea. Another idea that could help explain this paradox of like less intense sunlight and expansive forest growth at the poles would be some kind of change in ocean circulation because ocean circulation um, is a dominant factor that drives heat transport from the equator to the poles. And mm-hmm. Changes in the type and in intensity of ocean circulation could also have a dramatic impact on um, the localized climate of continents uh, near the pole. So okay. studying those things in Earth's history, those would be the kinds of areas that we'd probably look to to kind of help address those questions. And if we could tease out you know, some kind of sub-million year cyclicity, like the obliquity cycles every 40,000 years, we'd mm-hmm. definitely love to do that as well. And what we found in other areas at lower time periods is that lake sediments that have really fine laminations give us a chance to tease out those orbital fluctuations. Okay. Incidentally, Eric, do we know why these trees became fossils? Why didn't they just rot away like trees yeah. all over the world rot away, right? Yeah, I know. And so it's funny too, some of them are actually rotten. They're, they're actually rotten trees that became fossilized. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually one of the interesting finds they can talk about later. But why these trees became fossils, they, I'm going to, when I first started this research, we didn't really know. Um, a lot about, say, microorganisms and their relationships to the plants when, they, when microorganisms and plants were alive. And I mention this because it's a very important observation. But prior to this, I would have thought these trees would have been fossilized in the Earth's crust and may have taken, let's say, hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years to become a rock. So as, my, as, as a geolo- geologist, that's my understanding. That's what I would have surmised. Sure. But what we found with these fossil microorganisms, we found the symbionts, the fungal symbionts called mycorrhizae, preserved within the root tissues of these tree fossils. We know from the modern that if the host plant that has these mycorrhizae dies, the, fung- the fungi itself also degrade and, and deca- die and decay away within about two weeks. 
So to have the fossil remains of microorganism in the tree like it is does implicate that these trees were probably mineralized to some extent within about two weeks, which also suggests, too, that these trees may have been mineralized while they were still alive or Mm -hmm. while they were recently dead. Because we do find rotted away trunks really adjacent to, say, coherent, structurally intact wood as well. So we find a, a, a range of different kind of wood decay and undecayed wood, um, all preserved to the same degree. And okay. an exciting observation. And we have a modern analog, though, to help explain this. It happens, we know, at Yellowstone National Park in the United States. I'm sure it happens elsewhere, too, but it's, more, it's better studied there, where the trees that are growing near mineral-rich groundwaters can become mineralized in silica, often while they're alive. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately will kill the tree itself because it blocks off all of the conduits for water movement for the tree. But what happens is little nano nanometer scale balls of silica gel actually begin permeating into the tree and start gelling up and basically curing like cement. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be what we think was the fossilization process for these trees um, in Antarctica, is that they lived in an area that was intensely volcanic, volcanically active at that time. And this propensity and uh, of volcanic ash in the area probably generated enough of this silica to permeate the, the wood and begin mineralizing it the way it is. And so it's that process that we think leads to the exquisite preservation of the plant fossils in Antarctica. By the way, what, what's our understanding as to when trees and forests disappeared from Antarctica? Do, do we know when that would have occurred? Or, or did, did, did they come and go? Was it, were there a range of different periods? Yeah, they definitely came, came and went. And we do have um, unconformities in the, in the fossil record in Antarctica. So we have large gaps in time where we have little to no record of, of things. So it doesn't mean that there weren't forests or things living there at the time. We just don't have a physical record of it. We know that after the Triassic, there's a gap in our record between the Triassic and Jurassic for which we don't have an evidence of plant fossils. There are some rocks of that age that don't have a lot of plant fossils. So there might have been a gap in a forested Antarctica during that time but not because Mm -hmm. of glaciation. We think because of intense volcanism when Antarctica as a continent broke apart from the continents of Australia, Africa, and South America. And then we have another gap in time between that time period and the Cretaceous in which we have a fossil record from the Antarctic Antarctic Peninsula. So we're not Mm -hmm. sure exactly if it's forced between then. We just lack records to, to confirm that. The most recent fossil, if you like, that shows evidence of trees Goes back how far? Fourteen million years. Yeah, that, fourteen. That okay, really interesting fossils. They're basically mummified, freeze-dried fossil remains. They contain some elements of uh, ecosystems that we see today in Argentine Patagonia, uh, southern mm-hmm. trees and some mosses and things like that. And they occur uh, in the very tops of some mountain ranges. And they occurred at a time when the West Antarctic ice sheet was at an absolute minimum. There was still ice okay. in West Antarctica. But Western Antarctica was deglaciated to a much greater extent than it currently is. So there's a gap in time between the, ori- the origination of ice in Antarctica and the Cenozoic from that origination to about, say, you know, 15, 18 million years ago when there was vegetation in Western Antarctica. And then after that time, glaciation expanded again over Western Antarctica. And we haven't had forests or plants growing there since. 
How likely do you think it will be, Eric, that maybe you, your colleagues, or certainly other people will they'll go back to Antarctica and they'll keep looking? And how likely do you think it'll be that eventually someone's going to find fossils that are older uh, than the fossils you found uh, a year ago? Well, I mean, I, I hope we or anybody else makes more discoveries like that. Uh, older fossils, younger fossils, time equivalent fossils, like the more the merrier really, because every, every time that anyone discovers new fossils there, it always has the potential to increase our understanding for how these plants live. So those are always welcome discoveries. Like if it's older, like I'm, I'm no, I'm no, um, I'm not in a race to get in a Guinness book of world records or, or to have my name on the oldest forest. It's exciting for our like, scientific reasons. And because of that, I, it's very exciting to hope that we find more, say, older ecosystems, time equivalent ecosystems, what have you. In terms mm-hmm. of like, when we could go back, it's really dependent on grant funding and collaborations. And so some of those things are tied to the intrinsic, say, political and economic environments of the countries that we seek funding from. Um, they're also some, so, somewhat subject to developing international collaborations. I'm optimistic that I and my colleagues and collaborators will probably return to Antarctica, maybe different parts of Antarctica. In the next five years, I'd say probably I'm looking to maybe go back two more times in the next five years. That seems to be a, an average trend that I've been lucky enough to strike. And so, but it, the onus is on us as scientists to, you know, just keep developing hypotheses and writing proposals to test those hypotheses. And, and that needs to go through the the peer review process through our scientific colleagues to to define if those are meritorious objectives to invest in. So we just have to keep on trying to find the the, the most important and the best uh, uh, organized science that we can, and that will that will help uh, our chances of continuing to study study plant fossils in our in Antarctica. Will you be going to Antarctica this the next coming Austral summer? No, no. Our, our the current season that we just uh, finished with that um, that was the last field season of this current project that we're funded on. So at the time being, we have no commitments to go back to Antarctica at all. So we have to find we have to develop new projects and new hypotheses and um, put those to the peer review process. So if that all goes according to plan, I mean the earliest that we could probably go back would be like 2019, 2020. Just one last question, Eric. Some people might ask, well, why, what, what's the relevance for today? Why do we need to study about forest fossils of Antarctica of old? What are we trying to understand by learning more about the, the fossils of the past? Well, we, by studying the fossils of the past, we learned one important detail about how Earth as a system operates. We learned that plants are not just passively existing on our planet. Our planet isn't just made up of plants that just happen to be there. The occurrence of plants on land and these diverse ecosystems that they make has a direct influence on the climate and the climate of our planet. They influence how water moves between um, land and the oceans and between the equator and the pole. They influence the temperature and the temperature ranges of uh, parts of the land. And so plants actually have a very dynamic relationship to Earth's hydrosphere, uh, the cryosphere, and the atmosphere. And so these ecosystems in the past give us clues as to how, when, when, for, like, when, like, say, terrestrial ecosystems like forests, when they migrate to higher and higher latitudes, how that will actually impact Earth's climate, not only at the pole, but elsewhere, because these are all connected. When we grow forests, uh, the, the forests at the poles don't just grow there 
on their own in a vacuum. They actually migrated there from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing those kind of trends happening today in our contemporary world. So the, the connection to the contemporary environment is to understand how those changes might progress. And when those changes do happen, how does that alter ecosystems and climate elsewhere? And for our, our human side of things, the relevance for us is that we don't live at the poles. We really can't or we have a hard time doing so. So the, the relevance then is to understand how polar ecosystems, how they impact us where we live, say mm-hmm. temperate latitudes or lower latitudes, uh, because they are connected in this way. They are dynamic ecosystems that impact climates and say weather patterns elsewhere besides where they currently grow. So it's understanding that history and that connection to our planet that makes these um, actually relevant for society. The old fossils you found um, a little over a year ago, what's our best estimate of the age of those fossils? The oldest one, to put a numeric age on it, and it's really a provisional age, um, but I just I use this number because I feel like it, it, it encapsulates where we think it is in the stratigraphy, and it's a good round number to use. It's about 280 million years. Okay. Um, what we are doing and in the process of doing is using a far more advanced method to provide a numeric age on these rocks. And it involves things called isotopes, which are just different um, elements of, or different types of the same element with different neutrons and protons in them. Uh, they're radioactive. So uranium and lead isotopes um, in minerals called zircon. Mm-hmm. And the decay of uranium into lead, we know how those elements decay very well. And what they do is they kind of give us two little stopwatches uh, of decay because there's two different elements, two different isotopes of uranium that decay into two different isotopes of lead. So you have two little stopwatches. And by mm-hmm. basically counting how much of these lead isotopes are produced, we can kind of infer how long ago these particular minerals were made. And then how it relates to the fossils is that these minerals were made in a volcano. So hope, you know, roughly right before the volcano erupted ash. And so the age of those minerals roughly corresponds to the age of the ash and the ashes are what entomb these forests. So when we okay. measure those, those isotopes of uranium and lead, we'll be able to provide a far greater numerical age or far greater precision of the numerical age on the forests. And our precision, the state of the art today, what we're actually using, the method we're using, on something that's about 280 million years old, we can tell you the age of that ash within about 20,000 years. Okay, 20,000 years. Okay, right. So it's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> In a scale of 280 million years. Yeah, it's 0.01% age error. That's, that's the state of the art at, at the moment, yeah. Very good, Eric. Well, that's been fascinating. Look, thank you very much uh, for speaking to us today. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Eric Gilbranson of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. If you'd like to know more about Eric and the discovery of the ancient plant fossils, check out the episode notes on AntarcticReport.com, where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, email us at info at antarcticreport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time.